Listen to this. It's an emergency call. Contestor 911. Uh, I need help, please. Yes, I need ambulance. Uh, my wife, both, both. She's pregnant. Uh-huh. She, she is both. Is it that her water broke? Uh-huh. Is the baby coming? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much of that you can make out on just one listen, but what's happening here is that a guy's calling 911 because his wife is giving birth and he wants an ambulance to take her to the hospital. But he can barely speak English, so he can't understand the questions the dispatcher's asking him. So the dispatcher, she conferences in a Spanish-speaking interpreter. Can I help you? I have a male on the line. I believe he's saying it's a problem with his wife that she's pregnant. So the interpreter is getting much more of the story, which is that earlier the couple had gone to the hospital, but the birth didn't seem to be imminent, so they got sent home. Now the guy thinks his wife is in labor. So the dispatcher needs to know through the interpreter what stage this birth is at. A few minutes later, things start getting really hairy. It seems like the birth is just about to happen. Okay. He just needs to reassure her they are on their way. They will be there shortly, and I just need him to keep an eye on for the crowning. And in due course, medics arrive at the couple's home. The interpreter stays on the phone because she's still needed. The medics don't speak Spanish. Here's one of them talking to the interpreter. Okay, we are delivering the baby. Okay, I need to tell her to push. Okay, can you tell her to push, please? Yes, ma'am. Señora, necesito que empuje. Señora, necesito que empuje. Vamos a tener el parto ahí. Necesito que empuje. Okay. Okay, we now, you know the time, and we now have two patients. The baby has been born. Okay, I've noticed two patients. Okay, thank you. Wow, first time I heard that, I got all emotional. It's the, you know, the baby thing. Such a rush that you get, or I get anyway, from overhearing such a moment like that. So, so primal. But I think it's more than that, for, for me at least, anyway. It's the collaboration of everybody at the scene. The people really at their best, behaving incredibly well, which isn't the usual thing that I notice in this podcast. But you have these people all around the baby and the mother who are helping, and they can only be truly effective with proper communication, proper and instant communication. They need a phone, and they need someone who speaks the mother's language. So there it is, a bilingual birth. It turns out that for some interpreters, that's just another day in the office. Natalie Kelly has co-written a book about interpreters and translators and their lives. It's called Found in Translation. Her co-author, by the way, is Joost Secher. And I know how to pronounce that because Natalie told me how. Yost, which rhymes with ghost, and Secha, which rhymes with betcha. So Yost and Natalie, they both worked as 
translators in many different settings. Natalie has also worked as an interpreter. You may have heard her in the pod a few months ago talking about the lack of translation in Africa. Well, she wrote that report on Africa for Translators Without Borders, which commissioned Natalie's employer to do it. They're a translation industry research group called Common Sense Advisory. And the thing about the book and about the industry she works in is that they are incredibly wide-ranging. The need to switch languages and connect on paper, online, in person, it pops up everywhere, much more so today than ever before. My conversation with Natalie reflected that. It was equally wide-ranging, as you'll hear. Some stories she relates are based on her research, and many of them are based on her own personal experience in the industry. I started off asking what motivated her to write Found in Translation. I worked as a telephone interpreter for many years, and as a telephone interpreter, you're exposed to all different kinds of situations. Basically, wherever someone can get an interpreter or has a phone line, they could request interpreting services over the phone. So I started seeing that interpreters were needed to make a reservation in a restaurant, to order products from an engine repair catalog, you know, to order... Um, lingerie from a catalog or all these kinds of things, plus in courts, in hospitals, in police stations, all over the place. And so I started to see a huge diversity of applications for interpreting. And I also had worked in translation, so I knew from all the different types of projects that I was getting that translation appears in all different types of settings as well. You know, I would get projects to do everything from software strings to the recipe that appears in the back of a Hershey's chocolate chips bag. And so that's why I wanted to write a book about the diversity of the field. And my co-author really liked that idea as well and thought this would be a great book that people need to read. And there's been a lot of diversity in in what you had to interpret over the years as a, a Spanish language interpreter, correct? Absolutely. I've interpreted everything from babies being born to organ donation banks calling the parents of a deceased loved one. So literally, translation does go the whole range of the human experience from birth to death. And I have interpreted many settings that were involved in both. So. Yeah, and you talk in the book. You talk about one particular nine one one call that was. Why, why don't you talk about that a little? Sure. When you interpret over the phone, it's very common that you'll receive nine one one calls, and you never know when the phone rings who's going to be there. It could be a lawyer, it could be a doctor, it could be a nine one one dispatcher. Well, in this particular case, it was an evening, and a lot of the nine one one calls do come in at night. And I was working the late shift, and the call came in. And I answered very quickly, as you have to, immediately. And the dispatcher said, find out what's wrong. So I asked the question, and the person on the other line was actually whispering. And at first I hadn't even heard any response, so I thought maybe it was a child playing with the phone or something like that. But then I heard her whisper, he's trying to kill me. And when I heard her whisper that in Spanish... The hairs on my arm stood up because I knew this is a real emergency. Unlike a lot of the 911 calls that you get, which are complaints about the neighbor's noise or something like that, this was an actual true emergency, and I knew it as soon as I heard her whispering. And she was asked by the dispatcher through me as the interpreter, where is he? Because she said, he's trying to kill me. Where is he? And the Spanish speaker said, he is in the house, and that 
the dispatcher asked, does he have a weapon? And she said, yes, he has a gun. And as the call continued, and of course the dispatcher is doing things on her side, trying to, you know, send the police to the right place and giving them instructions and things that the interpreter doesn't hear going on. And as the interpreter, you'd like to jump in and say, ma'am, we're sending help. We're doing, you know, you want to say all these things to reassure her. But you can't. You can only really interpret what the dispatcher says. So I was dying for the dispatcher to say, help is on the way. But I couldn't say that until the dispatcher actually said that. So the the dispatcher did say that the police were on the way at one point. But she was actually, I, I learned this in the course of interpreting the call, she was actually hiding under the bed. And I could see her between the floor and the box springs hiding under the bed, whispering to me, telling me there's a man in the house trying to kill me with a gun. And he got to the door, and I knew this because she at first she said, he's in the hallway, and again, whispering, and then he's at the door. And then we heard silence. And you're not sure where this was? You didn't know whether it was in your hometown or somewhere hundreds, thousands of miles away? No. Generally, when the call comes in, you have a sense of where it is. Like the the operator handing you the call might say Dallas 911 or Houston Police or something like that. But it might be a division of the county that's responsible for voting or something. So you never really know. Whenever you get a clue that it's a city or a county, you kind of think, okay, might be a 911 emergency call. But in this case, I, I think it was somewhere in Texas, which is why probably I mentioned Dallas and Houston. I have the sense that it was because after the call, I, because she basically disconnected. And once we heard that she was disconnected, the dispatcher just said, you can disconnect now, interpreter. And so I was left to hang up and wonder what is going to happen. And I, I, I remember after this call trying to look online and trying to find out some way that I could learn more. But I knew also as an interpreter, I'm not supposed to step beyond that barrier. So even if I had seen you know, the number to call that dispatcher, there's no way I could actually have initiated a call because I would have been stepping over a boundary of confidentiality. But I did watch the news for the next few days to see if anything came out, and I never saw anything. I never found out what happened to her. And it's such a strange thing to be one moment her lifeline and so close to her, you know, being I, I was the person there with her under the bed. That's how I feel. But then just to be disconnected and that's it. You know, you never find out what happened. It's something that interpreters go through all the time. It must be something you guys talk about then among among yourselves. Um, I mean, we, we in journalism, you know, we're supposed to be kind of rough and be able to take everything. But there are groups out there who look after PTSD and, you know, all of those kinds of things. I mean, do you have anything like that? Well, it's not very common, to be honest. In fact, even people who have interpreted trials for torture and things like that often don't get stress counseling afterward. For telephone interpreters, it depends on the company that is hiring them. Some companies do provide them with stress debriefing. So when I worked with this particular company, they did have a stress debriefing process. And at the time, I didn't debrief with anyone because it just felt like, well, I wasn't witnessing a murder or you know anything that felt really traumatic. But it did truly affect me. I think what affected me the most was just not knowing what happened to her. And if I had known that she was safe and that the police got there in time, then I would feel much more relieved. But just not knowing is the part that's the hardest. Right. It's almost as though the interpreter is not human. Mm -hmm. 
there's this conversation going on, and because the interpreter, if the interpreter is doing a professional job, doesn't ask the questions, doesn't initiate certain investigation, and doesn't have the kind of status that either of the other two members of the conversation have. And that's exactly the problem that interpreters and translators, I would say, face. You know, in interpreting, we often talk about the invisibility of the interpreter. If the interpreter is really doing a good job, in many cases, the interpreter should be invisible. That's the theory. Because you want the two people to feel like they're having a direct conversation and that there is no language barrier. So invisibility is important in that sense. On the other hand, it leaves the interpreter without the ability to be a human being and to have a role in the conversation and feel like they have a purpose beyond just being the voice or being the filter or the bridge or there's many metaphors that people use. So yes, I would say that's that's true. Right. On a bad day, uh, an interpreter or a translator would describe their role, uh, as you noted in your afterward, as un- unappreciated or underappreciated. Definitely. I mean, it's actually funny. I just came from a conference where I was talking with an interpreter, and she was very nervous because she was giving a presentation. And she said, I'm so used to being someone else's voice, and I speak you know, in front of huge crowds, and I've interpreted for so many celebrities and people like this, but I am not used to speaking with my own voice. <laughs> so, yes, it, interpreters are definitely underappreciated. You know, the worst part is that the invisibility is great until something goes wrong. And then when a mistake is made, of course, the interpreter is the first person to be blamed, even sometimes when it wasn't the interpreter's fault and they're just really communicating the message. It is the messenger that gets shot in those cases. Oh, no question. I mean, whenever sports stars go blathering off to some foreign language newspaper and complain about the fact that the coach hasn't picked them or something like this, and, and then it's always blamed on uh, translation. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is that you know, I have talked to some interpreters who, if they're interpreting for sports, for athletes, as you mentioned, sometimes they won't interpret some of the trash talk that is going on because they don't want it to affect the athlete's performance. It depends on who is paying that interpreter and, you know, where their loyalties lie. Court interpreters, for example, are an officer of the court, so they are neutral, completely neutral, do not take a side, you know, with either party. Medical interpreters tend to be paid by the hospitals, but they have a code of ethics that requires them to not take the side of either. In fact, some codes of ethics actually uh, promote advocating for the patient in the interest of their health and those kinds of things. So the codes of ethics and all of these things really vary from one setting to another quite drastically, and we have examples in the book that I think show that pretty clearly, including one example of mine that you might argue was not the most ethical decision where the communication was taking a long time, the client was paying by the minute, and I decided to clarify beyond just interpreting back and forth a miscommunication that kept happening over and over. That's a great story. I I wish you'd go into the details here. (laughs) Yes, I can. Well, it was basically a man and a woman on the phone, and they were dating. We call these Cupid calls in the telephone interpreting world. And the man was trying to arrange his next visit with his girlfriend. He was trying to figure out when would be the best time to visit her. And you might already be able to perceive, you know, especially if I said, when would be the best time of the month to visit her? (laughs) But that's not what he said. He asked, when would be the best time to visit? And, of course, she didn't really get what he was going after. 
And and you got it pretty quick. I did understand, or I thought I understood. This is the thing with communication. You never know for sure unless you ask directly. But over the course of him trying to set up a date and her not understanding, I really did get what he was asking. So basically, he started to ask things like, remember the last time how we couldn't be together the way we wanted to be? And I'd like to avoid those dates and, you know, things like that. And she still just wasn't getting it. You should, anytime, sweetie, I can't wait to see you. And, you know, she just really didn't understand what he was trying to say. I eventually asked her a little more directly than what he had said, what would be the best days to avoid, you know, I, I basically said to avoid you being on your period, which you might argue maybe the interpreter shouldn't do that. But he was so grateful and she was so grateful to finally understand what he was saying at the end. The outcome was good, but, you know, in a professional interpreting setting, usually you don't do that. I would never do that in a court interpreting setting. In this particular instance, I felt it was justified because it had gone on long enough, and, you know, the goal also is to provide efficient communication. And he was paying by the minute, and I knew he was saving his dollars to go visit her in Colombia. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of a an embarrassing story in some ways, but it was a pretty funny thing when it happened. <laughs> Right, right. What were the areas where going into... I mean, clearly you know many instances of interpretation and translation that take place sort of almost transparently and the rest of us just don't even give a thought to and maybe it hasn't even occurred to us that, that any translation is taking place. But were there some areas that kind of took you by surprise that, wow, they, they translate in this setting too? Well, I was kind of surprised to learn that Harlequin romance novels, for example, depend so much on translation. I was also surprised to learn that StyleSight, a company in New York, hires full-time translators to translate fashion trends. I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that before. I knew about translators working in different settings like porn, you know, soccer, all kinds of different areas. Wine translation I knew existed, culinary translation, opera translation of the opera libretti. But I think the one that surprised me the most, and a lot of people are surprised to hear, is that uh, translation actually helps catch outbreaks and prevent the spread of them by this massive program uh, that is basically scanning the news and looking for symptoms. You know, that's, I guess, the simplest way to explain it. It actually caught the SARS epidemic and swine flu before any other technique or, or system did. This is called the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, uh, GPHIN is the acronym. And this is uh, developed in partnership with the World Health Organization and Canadian physicians. And I think it's pretty fantastic to know that translation is saving lives, preventing the spread of disease. Most of it is being done with automatic translation, so machine translation with limited human involvement. They're scanning these articles that are in other languages and translating them back into English and other languages and consolidating all this data to try to determine, okay, is this word for fever appearing in this specific location a lot of times. And in many countries, like in India, you know, there might be multiple languages where it's appearing. So they're consolidating all this data after it's been translated in order to track trends. The humans are still involved in fine-tuning the automatic translation tools that they're using. So 
even though the humans are not translating this because obviously it's all happening very quickly and huge volumes, that's a perfect application for machine translation, which most people know in the form of Google Translate, but actually exists in many different forms. And this is one of them. This is a, a very good and important application of machine translation that a lot of people have never heard of. It doesn't sound like you're in the slightest bit worried about this particular machine translation or, for that matter, any others. No, I'm not worried about machine translation at all. The amount of content that is being produced is simply too enormous for the existing supply of human translators to translate. The question is, you know, how will organizations that need translation determine which types of content need which type of translation. But humans are still involved in machine translation. That's the thing that people don't often understand. Humans are the ones that train and build the machines, so to speak. Right. And all of the experiments which have largely failed, the, the military has used little devices in the field for the, you know, one day one might imagine there might be some civilian application were one to be more successful. It just seems like a really, really long way off before you have that in a courtroom or in a hospital bedside. Yeah. A lot of these, uh, like the ones you mentioned that were used by the military, they can have some use. They can serve some purpose. If it's a battlefield, we don't want to send a human in in its basic terms. Perhaps a machine interpretation tool exists today that could handle some of those situations. But there are all these other factors that complicate things. You know, humans don't speak predictably the same way from one person to another. Their pronunciation is different. They might have physical reasons why they say things differently. There might be background noise that gets in the way. You know, text translation is much, much simpler, you know, just converting information from one written language to another. And yet, it seems as though there are so many aspects of language that are so, so difficult to actually render from one language to another. And I love the section about uh, color, because depending on the language you speak, you may be experiencing or perceiving color in a different way. You're certainly describing it in a different way. If for some languages, there are certain blues and greens that are described with the same word, and then the word cherry, depending on which language it is, is a different color. <laughs> it's a minefield for translators. It is. It's the most difficult thing, and I actually know this because I, I had to translate for hair dye. It was things like sunny auburn, glowing auburn. It had a huge list of like 20 different shades of auburn. And I thought, how on earth am I going to come up with equivalents for these? It's just impossible. You know, in some languages, there isn't really even a word for redhead. So you can imagine how if you're going into all these different shades, and of course, some of them are invented. Like if you ask me to describe the difference between sunny auburn and glowing auburn, I'm not going to be able to tell you unless I see it. But brands have to think about that. But yeah, there's um, one that we include in when I used to train interpreters uh, for telephone interpreting, we would take a lot of insurance calls over the phone for car, automobile insurance and accidents. And it was always a problem when people would say they had a car and they would use the word guindo to describe it in Spanish, which is to come up with the perfect word in English is so hard because there are many ways of saying something similar but not exactly the same. So it's like red wine, cranberry, burgundy, reddish purple, 
is a sour cherry. So you might say dark cherry colored, or but it, it doesn't conjure the same image as I get when I hear the word guindo. I know exactly what color guindo is. So usually I would end up saying something like burgundy red wine, but I could never just give one word. I would have to give several because it just doesn't convey the exact same thing. We use color words in strange ways. Like we refer to someone's skin as white when in actual fact it might be pinkish. Black, same thing. It's not black, it's more brown. Red wine is not really red, red, and white wine is not white, but more yellow. So, you know, even these words that we use for colors, we don't think about the fact that this could be very confusing for someone who's learning English for the first time. Why are we calling it red wine, you know? <laughs> so it's it's very, it is a minefield. You're absolutely right. Right. Well, I'm thinking as you're saying that you are a redhead, <laughs> but that's orange hair. <laughs> It's true. Yes, it's orange hair. And it's so funny because I had, yeah, I had a lot of fun with that in Spanish because most Americans would call me a redhead. But in Spanish, sometimes I wasn't perceived as a redhead because I don't have freckles and I don't look like the typical redhead. So sometimes they would come up with funny nicknames and things. One of my favorites was actually La Colorada, which is the same. It's the feminine version of the word for Colorado, which means ruddy. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of offensive, but it was playful and funny. You just can't even begin to imagine how difficult it is to translate some of these terms. And sometimes you just have to make the best possible choice. And like in the case of all those hair dyes that I mentioned, I just had to come up with something that would fit into the range. So I had to think of light to dark, and that sure was a challenge. <laughs> so you were coming up for the very first time in Spanish with some of these tones that, as far as you knew, hadn't actually been defined before. <laughs> well, you know, there are things like sunny auburn and things like that. So I, I looked at existing couplings of words that I knew would make sense. And I did actually do research on it and find how other hair products had described it, and sometimes even just descriptions and photo captions and things like that. So I, I looked at a tremendous number of resources to come up with things that I knew would sound pleasant to people, because that's another thing. You know, if I use the word ruddy, it's not going to sound good, <laughs> but I could come up with others that, that did convey the right meaning and still had a positive connotation for the brand. It's much more difficult, in my opinion, to translate than it is to write. Because if you write, you can say whatever you want. But if you translate, you have to say only what that other person has written, or only what that other person has said. And you're, very, you're in a box. You know, you're constrained. You, have, you can't move too far outside the box, but yet you have to do something creative while you're in the box. And so you have to use whatever tools you can to make that same idea come across. Speaking of that, let's talk about literary translation a bit. You told me last time we met that you have translated some poems written by a woman whose native tongue is schwa. And you include a, a separate, a different story on schwa poems in the book. Maybe talk a little bit about that story in the book first, and then if you would, just speak a little bit about your own translations of these schwa poems. So schwa is the language that is spoken by an indigenous group in the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador. And when I lived in Ecuador, I became familiar with the Shuar people uh, and their culture. Now, there are many, many languages spoken in Ecuador, many indigenous groups. Shuar is one of them. And I was looking for a poet, a contemporary poet, whose work I could translate uh, someone from Ecuador 
And I stumbled upon this particular poet and thought that her work was beautiful. Now, I was reading her work in Spanish. I don't speak Shuar. Uh, it's an endangered language, and very few people speak it in the world. But she wrote in Spanish, and her poems in Spanish have these words in Shuar, which are very difficult to convey concepts in Spanish as well. Uh, so I asked her if I would be able to translate some of her poems into English, and she was delighted. She was very happy to know that her work could reach English speakers' ears and eyes. So I began looking for a way to publish some of her poems because even if I translate them, it's a long process to get them published. And I stumbled upon this organization in the UK called Poetry Translation Center, uh, PTC. It's actually funded in part by the UK government. And this group is a group of people that gets together and translates poetry. They don't necessarily speak the languages that they're translating, but they will have one person who is the main translator who creates what's called a literal translation, a literal version. And in my case, because Maria Clara, this is the name of the poet, Maria Clara Sharupi, uh, she actually writes in Shuar and Spanish. So some of her poems are authored in Shuar, others are authored in Spanish, but she produces the translations herself. So in my case, I'm translating from Spanish into English. But a lot of the words she uses are left in Shuar, so I have to do a lot of clarification with her. I have to do a lot of research to understand what she's talking about sometimes. <laughs> There's one word in one of her poems that basically means the song that is emitted through the fragrance of a plant. One word. One word. That's the song that is emitted through the fragrance of a plant. And it took me a long time to figure out what exactly that means because we don't have a concept for that in my native culture. So this is something that is an example of a term that's very difficult to convey in another language without messing up the poem. You can't take one word and replace it with five or six or seven words without destroying the lyrical quality of the poem. <laughs> but Poetry Translation Center, they have a lot of experience doing this, and the woman who runs it, Sarah McGuire, actually invited me to come and do a workshop with them. So I was able to benefit from all of these different people with very diverse backgrounds. It's basically a collective, collaborative translation of a poem. And in my mind, there is no better way to translate than that. One of the words that we had to translate was actually delgado. It's a word in Spanish that means thin, or it could mean skinny. You know, we debated all these different synonyms. You could argue whether they're really, truly synonyms. This is a, a story about a, a girl who's more like a tomboy, and she's climbing trees, and she's in the rainforest, and she has dreams, and she's excited, and we don't want to lose that excitement and that strength by saying skinny. You know, it implies something completely different. So we ended up using the word lean, but that was really because there was one member of the group said, the girl that you're describing does not have the word thin or skinny associated with her. That's not the right word. She pointed out some really good things, like why would we ascribe this lesser word to this young girl? If it was a boy, would we do that? And she brought all these points of discussion out that wouldn't have been there without her. At the end of it, we produced some beautiful poems in English that are faithful to her originals. So that's... That was an incredible experience, and I've been translating her poetry on my own, but I would love to go back and do more with them because there's no replacement for that type of interaction and feedback. 
Yeah, the whole notion of group translation, in a way that plays into the algorithm of, of Google Translate. It plays into the software that you were talking about before. It plays also into what some Chinese volunteers were doing with The Economist that you also talk about in in the book that I hadn't heard about before. Yes, and that really is a fascinating story because The Economist is produced in Chinese every two weeks by a group of volunteers in China. And they have this project. And if you look at it, it looks really professional. It looks, you know, laid out the same way and everything looks perfect and they really spend a lot of time on it. But it's because they love the Economist and they love the articles and they think that information is important and that it should be out there. So they have a team of people doing it, volunteers doing it in their spare time. Now, a lot of professional translators feel very threatened by this because this is work that they feel they should be paid to do. However, for a magazine like The Economist or any other publication, if they haven't invested in that, it is kind of a natural, organic way that their fans just end up doing it. And so my view is that when collaborative translation like that happens, the organizations that are the recipients of it should be mindful and watch what's happening. And sometimes they can provide them with support or even help ensure the quality because that's a big concern that everyone has when these things spring up. And they are aware over at The Economist of this group's activities, and they do have certain limitations around what types of stories they can and cannot translate. If it's something that's very critical of the government, they will not... Of the Chinese government. Yes, yes, they will not translate some of that content. Or if it's about controversial topics, Tibet, you know, things like this, they won't translate it, or they will have to go through a process to make sure that what they're saying is not offensive. Now, isn't that a problem? I mean, from the economist's point of view, isn't that therefore that particular Chinese version of the economist is taking a slant by doing essentially the same thing that the great firewall is doing online, not allowing you know, you to search words like Tiananmen, Tibet, what have you. I mean, isn't that just sort of playing into the Chinese government's hands somewhat? My view is that if the economist staff wants to have a concerted effort to create a version of the magazine for China, it probably wouldn't be an exact copy of The Economist that you and I read. It would probably be different, and the stories would probably be different, because otherwise they would have these issues of who's going to distribute it, you know, who is going to buy it, who's going to be seen reading it. So they're kind of in a difficult position, I think, if they wanted to just basically produce a translated version. I don't think it would be so easy to do that. So this is kind of maybe the next best thing to that because the people are in control and they do have power to choose which stories they translate. Now, granted, they're not going to translate all of the stories that might be too sensitive, but they're judging that and they're kind of sometimes maybe playing it a little risky and translating some of those articles and translating some of those things that might not be so favorable. Uh, So I think it might be helping shift Uh, attitudes and views by providing a Western perspective and the translated version of that. I actually think it might be more successful than if The Economist were to create a version where they are basically deciding what content goes in and out, because ultimately the people have to play a role in that. The people who are reading it 
are the market, so to speak. They're the recipients of that information. So in this case, the recipients of the information are taking it into their own hands before the producer of the information gets a chance to. So you could argue that it's good or bad. Okay. Um, one other area that I was aware of the fact that there had to be translation or interpretation, but nonetheless I hadn't thought through all of the possibilities of that, is that spacewalks at the International Space Station. You interviewed, what, the chief interpreter? One of the interpreters, yes. Her name is Irina, and she's an interpreter for Russian. And I found it really fascinating to know that translation is used in outer space. <laughs> I think uh, sci-fi geeks wouldn't be surprised, but they might be surprised to know that it's being used in this way and not for alien languages. Absolutely. And, I mean, if we see anything slightly go wrong or if something just doesn't go according to plan, presumably the panic backstage is, I don't know, even greater for the interpreters than it is for anybody else. Well, the anxiety that interpreters experience is huge for many, many different settings. Obviously, this would be one of them. But the anxiety is just as great, I think, when you're interpreting a sentence to someone in a courtroom or, you know, if you're interpreting a difficult diagnosis to a patient or a parent of a child in a hospital setting. Interpreters are constantly dealing with these kinds of high-pressure situations. You know, we have a story in the book also about interpreting for the United Nations and some of the things that are said in those contexts, or even for the European Parliament and other government settings, diplomatic settings, when people are using heated words toward each other. It's very difficult to be the interpreter in those situations because human beings are not always nice to each other <laughs> as an understatement. But Interpreters are caught in the middle in a lot of cases. We're the ones delivering that information to the other side, whether it's good, bad, neutral. <laughs> right. And maybe we know about the sort of diplomatic faux pas and the public sphere, those sort of moments of tension. I think that we have a sense of how that is difficult for interpreters. But talking to you and reading the book makes me realize that it's far more common than that, and it takes place in courthouses and doctor's offices, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, on a daily basis. Oh, yes. I think one of the most visible ways that interpreters are seen in the public at large is in diplomatic settings. Where they're not so visible is when they're interpreting in hospitals and courts, like you mentioned, police stations, and behind the scenes, you know, behind the scenes, translating information, interpreting all kinds of interactions. You know, I often tell people that every Home Depot in the United States has interpreters for 180 languages at the touch of a button. They have a phone that has two handsets, so if anyone walks into any Home Depot, they can get an interpreter instantly for 180 languages. Go into a hospital, however, and it is not always as easy to get an interpreter, even if you really need one because your life is at risk, your health is at risk. So you might not think about interpreting at your Home Depot. You might not think about interpreting in some of the stores that you walk into. Your local insurance agent has an interpreter service. Banks, you know, banks are huge users of interpreting services to open up an account, to get a mortgage. All of these things require interpreters. And the ATM. I love the fact that you can go to the Vatican <laughs> and actually <laughs> withdraw money in Latin of all languages. Yes, well, you know, I, I was interested in researching that particular story because when I went to Ireland, 
where my husband is from, I noticed that the ATMs were trilingual. They were in English, Irish Gaelic, and Polish. So there was a language of a native minority population. There is a language of an immigrant population with Polish and, of course, English. I found that so fascinating, and I thought, I have to find out what other languages are spoken or used in some of the ATMs around the world. And yes, indeed, the Vatican allows you to use your Latin if you want to take out money in Latin. It's the only ATM that I was able to locate where you can take out money in Latin. That, that strikes me unlike just about any other ATM situation, all of the ones that you cite. That's not for usefulness purposes. I mean, that's almost a little joke, right? <laughs> Well, you know, it's kind of, I think, done maybe as a joke, but really more for the beauty of language, the appreciation of language. And you could say the same thing about some endangered languages. People will say, well, that's nobody really needs that language there. And people might say the same thing about Irish, in fact, about Irish Gaelic, that, well, all the Irish Gaelic speakers today also speak English, so why should you have that ATM in Irish Gaelic? But it is important. It does make a statement. It does say something about that particular location in the world. And I think I, I wouldn't want to change the fact that you can take out money in Latin. You know, it is a dead language. I'd like to see other dead languages have ATM interfaces for people who still use them. And, and you know, it might not be as practical uh, in, in certain locations, but I think language diversity is a good thing <laughs> in general. <laughs> Absolutely. And the book is full of all kinds of words and phrases in other languages that are so, so difficult to translate into English or, or just simply are unique to those languages. Something that we used to do regularly in the podcast um, in a segment called Eating Sideways. And I, there was one in particular that really got to me because I thought it was lovely. And it was a, it was the Inuktitut word for... Um, Internet, which is interesting because it presumably is a, is a word that has been thought about ahead of time. It's not like whale meat or something that just as nobody quite knows how it came into being. But in this particular case, it's an intellectual word that somebody must have come up with. I'm not going to try and pronounce the word. Well, maybe I will and make a fool of myself. Ikea kivik. I-K-I-A-Q-Q-I-V-I-K. The word, and I'm going to quote your book, it means traveling through layers. And it refers to what a shaman does when he travels across time and space to find about living or deceased relatives, which is one way of thinking about the Internet. <laughs> right. You know, when we did this interview, the individual that we interviewed who was a translator for Institut, whose name is Julia, actually said when she gave that Explanation: It's what a shaman does when traveling across time and space to find out about living or deceased relatives. She said, similar to how the net is used now. <laughs> and I thought that was so wonderful because there really is a parallel there. And it's, it's fascinating to stop and think about that, that a concept that is so distant from the culture in which the Internet was invented and the culture in which we usually tend to think of the Internet being used it seems so perfect. It seems like such a perfect term, even though it relates to shamans. And you know, some of these concepts that you find in other languages, like the concept I mentioned from Schwar, 
it might not seem like there's anything that familiar, but then when we actually start to apply it to other areas, we might find some common ground. And, you know, I think it's it's beautiful. It's one of my favorite examples in the book as well, Patrick. <laughs> well, on that note, I think that we should probably end because it's that in a way encapsulates both the the kind of ecstasy of translation and, and the sheer frustration also of trying to render a word like that with everything that it implies into another language. Well, and I love what you just said because the person who wrote the, the introduction for the book, David Crystal, said what we find in Found in Translation is ourselves. And I think what you just described, the ecstasy and the struggle and the sadness and the difficulty and the challenge is really the human experience. And that's really the point that we're trying to make throughout the book, that translation touches every part of the human experience. Natalie Kelly. Her book is co-written with Joost Secha. It's called Found in Translation. And there's much more in the book than just the stuff that we talked about. Lots of fun mistranslations, lots of translations that are perfectly good, but they're just inappropriate. And there are some straight-ahead good translations as well. I'll post some of those and links to some more of that kind of stuff at theworld.org slash language. If you like language stories, and I assume that at this stage in the podcast, like 30-odd minutes in, I, I'm assuming you kind of do. Well, if you do, I post a ton more of them than I ever get to cover uh, on Twitter. I also post the occasional snarky comment there. My handle is Patricox, P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X, Patricox. There's also a World in Words Facebook page. Thanks today to the interpretation and translation company Language Line Services, for providing the audio that I played at the start of the pod, The Birth. See you next time.